Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this week we're going to have the second of a bumper special podcast on preparing for Biden if he is elected. In our last podcast episode, we talked with Matt Duss, who is the foreign policy advisor to the Bernie Sanders 2020 presidential campaign about the prospects of a Biden presidency and what kind of pressures will be put on him from the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. And this week, we're going to look at what Europeans are thinking about the United States and Biden and how they're preparing for November. I'm very happy to welcome Vesla Chanova, who's Deputy Director of ECFR, Head of our SOFIA office, Jana Pulierin, who's the Head of Berlin office and a Senior Policy Fellow at ECFR, Tara Varma, who is the Head of ECFR's Paris office, also a Senior Policy Fellow at ECFR, and then coming back to the podcast as a human bridge from the last episode, we have Jeremy Shapiro, our Research Director and in-house US expert. Thank you very much for joining. So, Jeremy, why don't we go back to you for a short recap of what we discovered in the last episode about what Europeans should be expecting from a Biden presidency? Uh, sure. Thanks, Mark. It's good to be here. Uh, it feels like it was just yesterday that we did that last podcast. You know, Biden, I think, obviously, is going to be a sort of huge sigh of relief for people all over Europe. And the principal way that he's going to is in the sort of overall atmosphere that I think people, he's been emphasizing that a lot. This is going to be America's return to alliances, America's return to cooperation, America's return to multilateralism. And that's all, I think, real and important and a huge improvement from a European perspective, or at least from most of the Europeans, over the Trump administration. But I think it, it does maybe serve to hide some of the struggles that Europe will have with uh, a putative Biden administration. I think the first thing to understand is, and this is what was really emphasized in our conversation with Matt Dust, is that there is a lot of pressure on Biden from a growing progressive wing within the Democratic Party to be uh, certainly not Trumpian in its efforts to uh, be America first, but to think in terms of how international cooperation, U.S. foreign policy can improve the lives of Americans at home and how U.S. foreign policy can be more focused on American domestic priorities to include trade, to include immigration, to include uh, climate change, to get foreign policy to be working in the, in the daily lived existence of American voters. I think that the second thing that is going to be a, a struggle is the sort of growing conflict uh, that we already see in the Trump administration uh, between the U.S. and China. I think Europe has already been caught in that crossfire to a degree uh, with Huawei. And I think um, they're going to continue to be caught in that crossfire. The Biden administration has not shown much more flexibility vis-a-vis China than uh, the Trump administration has. And I think it's actually going to expect more from its European partners on this as part of its cooperative approach uh, than the Trump administration has expected or been able to demand. And then finally, I think something that just doesn't get talked about enough is the relationship with Russia. The Biden administration, the Democratic Party, in part as a result of the Russian meddling in the election in favor of the Trump campaign, uh, has become deeply, deeply anti-Russian. And I think as Biden has been showing throughout the U.S. policy, uh, which under Trump has been incredibly schizophrenic toward Russia, 
will um, change to be, I think, quite hawkish. And that will be welcome in some quarters in Europe, but not so welcome in other quarters. And I think regardless, we'll present a challenge to represent European interests on an issue which is actually, you know, taking place in Europe. I think overall, what all of this means really actually is that there is quite a bit of ability, especially given the progressive mainstream divide within a putative Biden administration to shape U.S. foreign policy and U.S. cooperation with Europe if Europe is proactive. And so I'd be interested to hear from the others about how, how much they think that's possible. In the past, they haven't always seized those opportunities, but and maybe they won't this time, but there certainly is one uh, if Biden is elected. So why don't we start with the German question, Jana? How are people in Berlin thinking about the U.S. elections? Is there a lot of hope about Biden being fundamentally different from Trump? Is there much thought going on about what a new transatlantic relationship might look like? Thanks, Mark. I think I can re-emphasize many things that Jeremy has already said. I think once Biden would be elected, you would hear a big sigh of relief all over Berlin because everybody here fears a second Trump term. So, but then I think it's not that clear cut because we had different camps um, ever since Trump got elected in Berlin, different views uh, on the transatlantic relationship. We had this one camp saying early on after the Trump election that Trump was not an outlier, that kind of there was a long-term trend and that interests diverge. And that this will also be the case with a Biden presidency and that we should lower our expectations. And there is another camp in Berlin, mostly in the conservative camp or in the dyed in the wool um, Atlanticist camp. And they basically believe that or they hope that things will go back to what they perceive as normal again, not to the good old uh, days, but that Biden will be uh, some sort of Obama 2.0, so a new version of the Obama administration, which was uh, for the German-American relationship fantastic. Um, I think it was the best period we ever, ever had. So, but people here well, talk about how much they can hope that things will go back to what we think uh, as normal for the transatlantic relationship. So what Jeremy talked about, America's return to alliances, to multilateralism. I think there is the hope that the U.S. becomes a partner again, uh, especially in fighting kind of a global pandemic or climate change or the global economic recession, and that a possible Biden administration would look with more benevolent eyes on kind of European defense efforts like PESCO or EDF. So I think there is a lot of hope, but the degree of hope diverges quite significantly and also kind of expectations how much we can cooperate in the future. Some issues will remain. Um, I think Nord Stream 2 will certainly remain. Defense spending will certainly remain an issue. And on China, I think it will be even harder for the Germans to sit on the fence and to do nothing because they also use Trump as an excuse. So I think if Biden asks the, the Germans to do something, it's much more difficult to say no to Biden than to Trump. So I think there will be quite some expectations also on Germany from the Biden presidency. Okay, why don't we sort of carry on going with our tour of Europe. Tara, you've been talking to people in Paris about how they're thinking about the idea of a Biden presidency. France is obviously a country which has traditionally had maybe a bit less hope about what it can get out of the United States than Berlin has. And certainly expectations have been on the downward viral since the early honeymoon days between Macron and, and Trump. How are people thinking about Biden? 
Hi, it's great to be back as well. I think it's pretty clear for people here that, first of all, a Biden administration would be a massive sigh of relief. But it will also not be going back to Obama. And there is a risk uh, for expectations on the Biden presidency to be as high as they were for an Obama presidency and to be a bit disappointed with these expectations. If Biden is indeed elected, he'll have quite a, a, a massive domestic agenda to handle and, and especially divisions in, in American society and the current polarization that we're seeing. So. Uh, the French are, of course, hopeful that a Biden administration would come back to multilateralism, what Jeremy said earlier, rejoin the Paris Climate Agreement, rejoin the JCPOA, and that would also make a massive difference. Take another serious and, and consequential role inside the P5 and at the Security Council. What I was told by one person was we would finally have a sensible conversation again. And I think that sums up <laughs> French expectations on on the Biden presidency and, and what we could expect. There are a number of topics on climate, on security, where we would expect a, a big Biden investment. And I think we're seeing typically on the climate issue how he's managed to build up the environmental part of his uh, programmatic platform is, is really important. And I think the influence of the, the Sanders camp had, here has played too. And this is something where on multilateralism, the transatlantic relationship can, can probably breathe again and, and be fruitful again. But I think, I think people are also worried about, again, putting too many expectations on the presidency and being wary that it's one of the options, another option still being that we have a Trump 2 administration. Great. Well, should we go south and east, Vesela? How do you think about it? You've been thinking and working on transatlantic relations for ages and have served in Washington and it, at times when transatlantic relations were quite fraught around the... Was it? Were you there for, for the Iraq war? Yes. Exactly. Yes. How do you see things developing and how do you think Eastern Europeans are thinking about Biden? I mean, obviously, there are people in Eastern Europe who think that Trump was actually not that bad. That Trump finally delivered on the promise for more military assistance to Eastern Europe, that he delivered arms to Ukraine, that he basically made the point of being serious about you know, hard power and about defense. There were obviously also <laughs> extreme ideas like calling a military base in Poland for Trump. There is this uh, whole Three Seas initiative to create some sort of a zone between Russia and Germany, uh, which would start in Poland and end in Croatia and would be some sort of a kind of the, the pro-Atlanticist zone in Europe. All of this exists. And I imagine that those people are going to be disappointed to see Trump go. However, I think the big majority, and we saw this also in our unlock survey, big majority of, of citizens are actually quite disappointed by the U.S. role, also by the U.S. role in the pandemic. And I think also this whole idea of uh, antagonizing partners, which uh, came about with Trump, the fact that uh, he has been insulting EU, he has been insulting NATO, he has been trying to bully partners uh, from Europe. I think that kind of became uh, much more of, a, of an irritant than in the first years of Trump. And so, you know, for Eastern Europeans, it is the idea of the West that describes kind of 
the geopolitical harmony. It's Europe with the US together. And that idea has been obviously very much impossible under Trump. So having the expectation of a change of tone under Biden would be already something, I think, very significant. Uh, Also in terms of trust and in times of crisis, trust is obviously what people mostly need. Economists need it. But also, you know, NATO needs more trust if it's uh, there to stay. So that change of tone is going to be is going to be very important. And also, I assume that Russia's idea of fears of influence is going to be pushed back against by a Trump administration, which is going to be very important. You mean a Biden administration? Uh, uh, by a Biden administration, of course. Sorry, yeah. it's going to be very important for Eastern Europeans. It is a totally different thing, though which policies will really see a a big change. And I think if we were to answer this question, then most probably we would be talking about Ukraine and the Western Balkans. And uh, I cannot think about much beyond that at this point. To piggyback on what Vesela was saying on both the tone and the policy content of a potential Biden administration, I, I'm always convinced that actually even the tone is part of the policy content. The fact of uh, treating your partners as equal, not insulting them, not spreading fake news, that actually, you know, that's wanting to be part of the international system. And that is saying something about the vision of yourself that you want to project to the rest of the world. And certainly there is an expectation towards that. What we've been talking a lot of is how Europeans are going to perceive a potential offer, if I may say so, that Biden would give them. I think linking it with with our uh, European sovereignty project, actually what we should do as Europeans is make Biden an offer that he would not be able to refuse and to be able to consult Uh, ourselves, you know, prior to to his winning the election, hopefully, and then and then taking over. But I think there should be another real strategic discussion between Europeans in what they expect from a Biden administration in terms of intervening, in terms of sanctions as well. This is not something that we've mentioned so much in China. Is this something which you think there is much work going on at the moment. I mean, France and Germany are back as a couple. They've developed this massive recovery plan together. Is there much dialogue between Paris and Berlin about what kind of offer to make to Biden if he's elected? I'm not privy to these discussions, but I'm not sure that they've started yet. And certainly if they do start, it would be good if Germany and France launched the discussion. But I think what we've heard also from Vesela and Yana is that we need to hear all our partners and that there seems to be, there might be an East-West divide here too. So we need to be as inclusive as possible and we need to be wary of how we want to project ourselves as Europeans too. But it is certainly a conversation that we will need to have. But I think there are significant differences still between Germany and France, uh, for example, on, on NATO, even though I think that the Germans lately have become more French in their rhetoric and we talk much more about European sovereignty than ever before. I think most Germans, especially kind of the defense, security and defense people would still say that NATO remains and should remain the backbone of European security and defense. And in France, NATO is considered uh, more part of the problem than part of the solution. So in Germany, the idea of organizing European security is still kind of with the Americans very much on board. It's a different question whether the Americans are on board but it's sure that the Germans want very much to have the Americans here and they very much regret the recent announcement Americans to, to send um, 12,000 soldiers either um, home to the US or to other European cities. So I thought they were all going to Belgium and Italy. 
<laughs> no, I think I think half goes home actually. So I think that on NATO, I think the German and the French view on transatlantic relations is a bit different, even though we are, I think, more and more converting. But I think what, when it comes to the role of the US and, and European security, the Germans would like to see a bigger role of the Americans. And, and they are, I think, still more hopeful that the Americans have an interest in that too. But what are the Germans going to do in order to encourage the US to... Because if what Jeremy said is right, that a Biden administration is going to be just as keen to end US overstretch as, as a Trump administration and will be thinking much more about the home front. How does Germany encourage the US to carry on allowing it to free ride? Well, I think the idea is still uh, the old von der Leyen um, claim kind of to remain uh, transatlantic and to become more European. But I think it's clear, I think, to everybody here in Berlin that the Germans have to step up and, and do more uh, internationally, even though that is a contested issue domestically. I mean, think uh, about the recent remarks by Rolf Mützenich, who just kind of... So he's the parliamentary leader of the SPD. Yeah, and, and he made the claim that uh, kind of the US kind of... He he welcomed more or less the troop withdrawal or said that kind of American nukes should be moved out of Germany, that we should end nuclear sharing, and that the US basically is not a reliable partner any longer. So but so but I think where everybody agrees on is that Europeans and especially Germans need to do more. The question is um, how to do that more in a NATO framework or more in an EU framework. And I think there is going to be a hot debate in Germany about all these issues. It will be probably issues-based, no? I think it will not be that much about the framework, but where this is possible and where not. Yeah, but also a lot of Germans, when it comes to security and defense, especially in the Ministry of Defense, are NATO firsters. And so there is, even though rhetorically Germany supports very much all the European defense initiatives, our recent coalition explorer, for example, has shown that kind of defense is really not a priority in an EU framework uh, for the Germans any longer. And also, I think with um, Annegret Kramp-Karrenbauer becoming defense minister, you see a strong emphasis on the transatlantic relationship again, more than uh, under von der Leyen. So. This is one of the paradoxes of the European sovereignty thing, because I think our thing when we launched the project was that if you want to have a successful and grown-up relationship between the Europeans and the Americans, you need Europeans to take a bit more responsibility for their own interests. That's definitely been the message from Washington for a long time. But in a strange way, even though European sovereignty should actually massively strengthen the transatlantic relationship, it's only when the transatlantic relationship is going really badly that Germans and others seem to be interested in building European sovereignty because free riding is so much more attractive and so much cheaper. Jeremy, do you think that the European sovereignty agenda is going to just disappear and people will go back to sleep if Biden's elected? And what would that mean for, for the transatlantic relationship? Yeah, I guess, broadly speaking, I do uh, think it will go back to sleep. I think the European sovereignty agenda isn't something that Europeans have exactly wanted. It's something that they've felt that they had to have out of the necessity of the Trump administration and the way that the world was going in some other ways. And I think you can hear it in this conversation, right? I mean, this sort of way that Europeans approach the Biden administration is they simply they start off by saying things won't go back to the status quo ante, they'll improve, but they won't go back. But then they describe what exactly sounds precisely like the status quo ante, again, fighting about whether to do defense in NATO or the EU framework. That doesn't matter. From a Washington perspective, they don't care. 
Um, that debate in Germany, as Jana well knows, is a, is a proxy whether you're basically allowing the U.S. to do their security or not. And I think if you really believed that you weren't going back to the status quo ante, you would accept that uh, there is no more NATO framework to do European defense. I mean, you can still have the meetings and everything. But ultimately, if you're going to have a European sovereign approach, whether you do it through NATO, whether you do it through the EU, whether you do it through some other mechanism, you have to do it as Europeans and not wait for the Americans to manage. So, Jana, do you think that Jeremy's right, that it will just kind of disappear, this appetite for European sovereignty? Well, I think it depends. Uh, you should ask Tara. I think there is a huge appetite for European sovereignty. In- I think there's sovereignty in Paris. There's no question about yeah. that. The question... We know it'll sustain in Paris. <laughs> <laughs> I think the bigger question is whether there'll be a German partner in it and other countries who want to go along with it. Because if the problem was a lack of desire in Paris, we'd have had European sovereignty a very long time ago, I suspect. If you have listened to Jens Spahn, who for me is a, or has been a died in the wool transatlanticist um, at our um, annual council meeting, he spoke a lot about health sovereignty and the Europeans be, the need for the Europeans to become more independent and kind of to be safe, sustainable. So I think that there is the growing realization. Jeremy is completely right. That is not because the Germans want to go that way, but because they think that they have no alternative. So the moment they will kind of see another kind of alternative. I think um, they could put the snooze button on the European sovereignty project again. The, the thing is that Jeremy is also right by saying that this will not help us uh, in, in the long run because it's not so much about us. It's very much about Washington. So what Washington wants to do with the Europeans is not decided in Berlin. And if it's right that the Europeans have to take care of their own security much more than previously, and I personally agree, then I think it would be totally wrong to push the snooze button. But I, I don't see a lively debate about, I don't know, a plan B for European defense. When I asked that uh, publicly, Annegret kamp karrenbauer in another discussion, she said, oh, there is no need for a plan B because we kind of need a plan A and a half in addition to NATO. But so the idea that the Americans are not longer there with us to defend us, to fight with us is not a very pleasant one here in Berlin. Jana talked about the long term, but Jeremy, could there be short term negative consequences? If I mean, one of the things which Donald Trump has done, I think, rather successfully is to look like he's a bit more serious about the rhetoric about pushing back on the demilitarization of Europe. Because, you know, we obviously heard it from Clinton, we heard it from Obama, and Europeans thought that they could safely ignore all of these messages. They feel a bit less comfortable doing that with Donald Trump. How does Biden carry on driving that message home is he going to be remotely credible if he if he tells europeans that he also wants them to get their act together i think it's going to be very difficult i mean obviously he is on the one hand going to be saying that as if as every american president since like 1952 has but on the other hand he's going to be saying you know we're back going to be saying we're restoring leadership. And this is the this is the sort of title of his foreign affairs article laying out his foreign policy. And so from the perspective of the sort of German that Jana describes that, you know, will only take European sovereignty if they absolutely must, there's going to be a lot of threads of hope there that they don't have to. Um, and my experience is if they if there's any hope that this that they don't have to do this stuff, they'll choose not to do it. I think Biden is is quite likely to give them that hope just in the way that he approaches the problem. It's the sort of downside of the cooperative approach, which, you know, obviously I, I would overall recommend to Washington, but I think it, it does have some downsides. And I don't know 
how he's going to really be able to convey this view. And that's why it, it sort of sets up a problem in the sort of third and fourth year of a Biden administration where someone will say to the president, you know what, uh, Trump was getting more from the Europeans by being mean to them than we're getting by being nice to them. Maybe we should think about that. But the problem is, I mean, just, just one last point, but I mean, Europe is facing an inward looking period. We are facing this big economic recession. We are fighting this pandemic. I mean, the Americans do too, but I don't see European capacity uh, also to step up very much. And, and, and that is, I think, going to be a, an additional problem in that relationship, that we are both inward looking. But what do you mean to step up? To step up to defend themselves? They don't have the capacity for that? I mean, this is, we're not talking about... But they don't feel threatened, Jeremy. They don't feel threatened. Germans frequently ask me, where is the threat? Where does the threat come from? That is the problem. If, if Europeans want to keep Americans in their, in their security sphere, assumedly they want to do that for some reason. Assumedly they want to do that because they find them useful. Uh, <laughs> and so what, what Americans are saying is, well, why don't you do that? No, absolutely. I understand that. To then sort of answer, well, oh, but what, where is the threat? Then, you know, when, why are the Americans there? No, I think that is, that is more a domestic discussion that, that uh, we are having with German citizens a lot, that, that kind of it's st still difficult for, to explain to the Germans that there is a need for more defense spending um, because what you get a lot from the people is kind of Russia is not a threat. We don't consider China a threat. So why do we need to spend more on defense? And it's very easy for politicians to say, oh, we, let's end nuclear sharing. Let's leave, uh, kind of let, let's applaud the Americans' troop leaving Germany and, and, and all of that. So, but I think, of course, the, the Germans need, uh, the politicians and the decision makers need to, to, to deal with that challenge and to sell it to the people uh, in a better way. So why don't we end by going back to Tara's question about what you know, Europeans should be going to Washington with. If we imagine this kind of scenario where instead of doing the normal thing of competing with each other to meet with the American president first, what you had was a brilliant united front where you had a well-prepared platform which brought together Europe from north, south, east and west. And you had a group of presidents and prime ministers traveling to Washington together to present Biden with a, a kind of European vision for a new Atlanticist agenda. What should be on it? Why don't we have a quick uh, tour? Maybe you can all say the kind of two or three things that you think um, should be in that platform. I think the China aspect is, is crucial. I think Biden would be much more willing to buy the, the argument that the Europeans can be an actual ally in dealing with China, whereas kind of we tried to offer that to Trump, but he considered the EU a much bigger threat than China itself. But I think with, with Biden, that could fly. Can I ask a question? What do you mean exactly? You think that Biden is going to infringe on the American interests for his European allies? No, I just think that the argument that kind of China and Russia will continue their efforts to weaken Western democracies and kind of pivot to Asia from the, Ameri from the American side will also prevail. And so that the US and the Europeans have a joint interest in dealing with China. Maybe we don't share all the methods that uh, the Americans um, have in mind, but we have, I think, a lot of overlapping interests. And I think that has been the case for a long time, but with the Trump administration, that didn't go down very well. So we weren't very successful in selling ourselves as possible allies in a world of great power competition. And I think that with Biden, that could be a way to revive the transatlantic relationship, to work together, to actually counter China on, on many aspects. So Vesa, what would you put in your package? I think if we frame the China issue in that collaborative way, which is not going to be easy, <laughs> I think, 
that is going to be obviously the most important one. Rather than just following whatever Washington administration would want from us, I think that's no, totally, the, the, yeah. yeah, not um, as vessels, as partners, <laughs> of course. Yeah, I would definitely put Ukraine on that list uh, because there our interests are overlapping, and the divergence between Europe and the U.S. there creates a lot of space for Russia, and it doesn't need to to be that way because I think. Uh, Uh, Europeans will have difficulties agreeing on Russia if there are big differences between them and, and the U.S. on that one. And my third one would be Serbia-Kosovo, because I think there it has been a totally useless spat that has created much more problems than anything else. It has, by the way, activated European position. So in a way, it has done Europe a favor. Uh, that's bad, but uh, I'm quite sure that together with the Americans, one can do much more and fairly quickly. It I think this seem, is a low-hanging fruit. It does seem absurd that there's an American policy on Serbia and Kosovo. It does, you know, if Europeans are going to take more responsibility for their own affairs, we should at least be able to start with Serbia and Kosovo, <laughs> where there's not even a war going on. Tara, what's on your list? Um, I would fully agree with Jana and Vesela on China and Ukraine. I would add the Sahel, where, to be fair, there's a lot of intelligence and uh, operational cooperation already going on. And I would add global issues such as health and climate. Okay. And Jeremy, what would you put to that list? There's a bit of a problem with the list because I think it's obviously good that the US and Europe cooperate on these types of issues, and they conceivably could on any one of them. But it, there's a risk here in sort of looking at China and looking at Ukraine that you go and you sort of say, well, you know, we want to cooperate on these issues. And the Americans basically hear that as you want to follow our agenda. That's particularly true if you come on China, where basically this is an American agenda. The Europeans don't actually have a China agenda and don't really need or want one beyond the economic realm. They don't have a geopolitical agenda on China. And so it can only ever be an effort to sort of please the Americans. So my perspective would be what they should do is say, look, uh, there's a few problems in the European area. I think Ukraine and the Balkans are the ones that, that stand out, but also actually Libya and the Sahel. We'll deal with those. We will solve those. We want your support, but we want you to follow us on them. And in return, we will support you on China. And what you're essentially saying is we're dividing up the world, if you will, into spheres of, of Western influence. And what we want is an agreement about who follows who, where, as opposed to these sort of different cooperative agendas where the Americans will just dominate on each other. That sounds like every German's worst nightmare. Basically, Americans saying we'll completely disengage from all the issues which you are insecure about. And in exchange, we want you to follow us yeah. totally on China, which is a massive economic issue for us, which, which yeah, no, we really care about. I think that's, that's totally fair. It's just that otherwise, all, all these things get is, is it's, it's a sort of return to a, a sense that the Americans have to determine the agenda and then go out to Europeans and get some support or not, but the Europeans are very passive actors. That is a, a great end to, to our discussion. We have a few months now to see what Europeans make of the brilliant advice that we're giving them. And we'll also see whether Joe Biden actually wins the presidential election, which is a 
obvious, important precursor for any of these policies taking shape. But for now, we have one thing left to do on this podcast, which is our bookshelf segment. Jana, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? Well, I have something for German speakers only. I'm sorry, but I, I really enjoyed reading it. Um, so it's written by Constanze Stelzenmüller in the current edition of Internationale Politik. And it's called uh, Falken im Sturm, Hawks in the Storm. And it's about actually the very topic of our podcast. So what happens with a new Trump administration or a possible Biden administration? What happens with US foreign policy? And kind of what are the debates right now in the US? It's a very nice read and I really recommend it. Okay, Tara? So actually, it's on my computer shelf, if I may say so. I'd like to talk about very briefly a series that I'm watching, which is called Counterpart, which is a science fiction series, and I recommend it vividly. I really don't like science fiction usually, but this takes place in Berlin, what would be a UN agency, and basically it narrates two parallel worlds that would exist in two parallel Berlins. And it's a spy drama. And in one of the two worlds, there is a massive flu that has killed hundreds of millions. And so we see people with masks on and uh, hydroalcoholic gel being distributed everywhere in the street. It was first released in 2018. So it's quite prescient in a way on in the situation that we're in right now. I'm not sure that I want to watch stuff now that I've had to live through so much <laughs> of that stuff. <laughs> I've seen that, Mark. It's really worth watching. <laughs> Vassila, what's on your bookshelf? I got an Applebaum's book, Twilight of Democracy, The Failure of Politics and the Parting of Friends, which is about all of her friends whom she has been inviting to parties throughout the last 30 years and with whom she has been talking and who ended up paving the way to, to Trump and to Brexit. I am still in the beginning of the book, but it looks uh, like a very promising one. In a way, it's a story that all of us can share a little bit. Yeah, it sounds a bit like the <laughs> films about <laughs> pandemics. Having lived through it is kind of bad enough. Jeremy, what's on your bookshelf? Thanks, Mark. I'm still reeling from the previous suggestions. I think uh, last week or whenever was the last podcast, I talked about this uh, book called Cersei by Madeline Miller, sort of feminist retelling of, of the Odyssey. So I went, I'm now going back to her first one, The Song of Achilles, which is a sort of uh, feminist retelling of the Iliad, specifically about the relationship between uh, Achilles and Patroclus. Good that we have at least one feminist among us. Absolutely. I'm here for you guys. <laughs> On tap. I'm going to recommend a book called Quest for Status, Chinese and Russian Foreign Policy, which is an interesting attempt to apply social psychology to international relations. So they're taking social identity theory, Henri Tajfel's fascinating theory about group identity and trying to use it to explain Chinese and Russian foreign policy, both during the Cold War and post-Cold War era by Deborah Welsh Larson and Alexei Shevchenko. So if you've enjoyed listening to this, please do make sure that everyone you know knows about it by writing about it on your social media page or ours, but above all by heading to whatever platform you've used to download this, this podcast on and give us a good review and preferably a five-star rating. We'll put links up to all the publications we mentioned on our website at www.ecfr.eu slash podcast. But for now... From Jana Pulierin, Vesla Chanova, Tara Varma, Jeremy Shapiro, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher on this week's podcast is Lucy Halpenthal, and our editor is Marlene Riedel. <laughs> <laughs>